Hello, humans. For those of you who are new here, my name is Sam Lamott. Welcome to the How to Human podcast. I will not be telling you how to human in any of these episodes, but I am searching for what some people that I look up to have learned and are doing in their lives. Welcome to the How to Human podcast. For a brief moment, I want you to take in, if you can, as much as possible in one moment, the totality of your life. Now, I get it. You might be listening to a program like this to take a break from your life. But let's just for a second zoom out and take it all in. The whole expanse of it. Your childhood, your coming of age, your life now, your first heartbreak, your first love, the first time you were betrayed, the first time you made an amazing friend, this whole collection that is your life. Feel it for a moment. And at the root of this whole thing you're doing now, the experience of being human, being you, being your world, there's one inconvenient truth about it, which is it's all going to end. You're going to die. And I can already hear some of my listeners and friends going, yeah, bring it on. <laughs> I didn't ask for this mess. I get it. I get it. I'm with, I'm with you. At times in my life as well, I get it. At the same time, it is troubling, but it is a truth. A truth none of us can escape. Not even the earth itself will exist forever. So what do we do with this information? That we have a chunk of time that is ours that will end. Well, the answer is, for a lot of people, nothing. Pretend it doesn't exist. There are people who think that almost everything we do has to do with avoiding the terrible truth that we will die and the fear that comes from it. Some of us decide to extend it, that we are immortal. We create afterlives or things that might happen afterwards. Who am I to say what is ultimately true? But what I can say is true is that your time here is going to end, and that shouldn't be something you avoid. I know it's deeply uncomfortable. At least in the Western world, we don't have a lot of death on the forefront. Matt Hahn and I were on a hike lately, and he pointed out that when Westerners die, what do we do? We throw them in coffins. We hide them. We bury them. And was comparing it to some other traditions like Tibetan death meditation where people will donate their bodies to a monastery so it can openly decay for people to meditate around for the period of time that it is decaying. And one day you will come and you will watch the changes in the skin and the next day you will come and you'll watch as it's picked apart by the scavengers and another day you will come and watch as the some of the bones are scattered and to spend time contemplating this this truth that you will die. At a young age, I was terrified of death. And at a young age, I found great comfort in the idea of an afterlife and was the driving force for me falling in love with Christianity. The first time I fell in love with Christianity, I think I'm having a little bit of a, a second go with it in maybe not the devout religious way, but in a deep appreciation for some of the traditions and rituals and ideas that are part of the faith part of the practitioners of the faith, which I think is what I love the most. Our guest today is Kate Baller, 
who wrote two incredible memoirs about her process of finding out she was going to die sooner than she expected, much sooner. And those two books are Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved and No Cure for Being Human and Other Truths I Need to Hear, which read incredibly in that order. And they're incredible. They are a unvarnished look at her process of confronting the same thing all of us will be confronting one day. So here you are, human. 30 trillion cells made up of reclaimed 11 billion-year-old atoms spun together by some strange physiological alchemy your mother performed. That's some deep magic. What are you going to do with your little bit of time? And you have a little bit of time. It reminds me of a coin that Peter Rollins gave me that just says, there is no solution, there is no solution, there is no solution. And we are solution machines. We are meaning machines. And it is way better. And in my estimation whether you're going to decide whether it's all meaningless, which in some sense, if you want to look at the information in one way, yeah, you can come to that conclusion. And at the other, that we are meaning-making machines. That we made stories and meaning out of our first stuffed animals, out of the tragedies and triumphs of our lives, that we have spun meaning and matter and made things matter into our worlds. It's an interesting place to start from. And so you are here. You're an earthling, but most importantly, you're a temporal being. You belong to a time. You have a time. I don't know when your time will end. And I don't know when my time will end. But I do know that we have a little bit of time now. Thank you for sharing your time with us. Kate is also a professor at the Duke Divinity School. She's probably the nation's leading expert on prosperity gospel, which is incredibly interesting to me. One thing I don't know if I mentioned during the episode, I love Joel Osteen. Sorry if that's terrible. (laughs) I bought satellite radio to have it. And I'm an agnostic. I don't know what that says about me, but I will say I just love it when he says, you're a champion. You're going to triumph. Your problems will get small. I'm sorry if I love it, but it was an interesting conversation to have as well as the the big existential question, but just to sit down with somebody who has spent 10 years of her life traveling to these churches and learning what is working and what isn't working. If you read her books, you'll know that is a very generous estimation. I'm a Christian turned atheist, turned agnostic, drawn to religious speakers and sermons and parables. What is that? What am I finding comfort in? Why am I listening to Joel Osteen? (laughs) So Kate, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm so glad to meet you. I've been really looking forward to this interview. So for the prep, just to give you an idea, I read, I think your two latest books. So Everything Happens for a Reason and No Cure to Being Human. Yeah, the more recent one, which I would be a little horrified if you read, was my enormous history of women in ministry called The Preacher's Wife. So those are technically my most recent. And then this would be an opportunity for me to just look into your eyes and be like, Sam, I'm sorry, but I needed my job (laughs) at the university. Your work at the Duke Divinity School is actually something I really want to take advantage of while I have you here. I do want to talk about your life. I loved your memoirs tremendously, and they read back to back really nicely. It almost feels like, I don't know if they're supposed to be 
like seasons, but it felt like different seasons of a show. They, it just, I didn't notice when one book ended and the other <laughs> one started, it just became one long story. Oh, that's nice. Thanks. So I like to start this conversation, these conversations the same way every single time. And this can be as big or small of a question, Kate, but who are you? Oh, um, well, my most Canadian answer is I'm a Canadian. We always start that way. And then just, and then a Christian, I guess I'd go next. But mostly a, like if a golden retriever became a person. I think that's, I think that basically is my energy. I, I want to ask you something it completely honestly, and you can answer honestly, there's no pressure. Are you comfortable doing the, the deep dive on your, your sickness and your, your mortality and that kind of stuff? Or are you not interested yeah, sure. in that kind of conversation? Oh, that's, it's, it's very sweet of you to ask, Sam. It's totally fine. Sure. Yeah. Well, generally when I write about something and do the cathartic part, it's kind of, once it's done, it's, I, I don't really want to talk about it. So I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. I did. It took me a while to get used to, because the things I realized I was willing to write were very different than the things I was willing to say. So yeah, it's always like, it's definitely taken a bit to be able to like verbalize expensive truths in particular. Okay. Well, if it gets not fun for you, you'll just let me know. And that can be oh, like a cool experience for the audience to hear about boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Joe. That's so nice. So starting in, in the book, everything happens for a reason and other lies I've loved. Yeah. You get sick and it really changes your life. There's a, a line, control is a drug and we are all hooked. One of the things yeah. that happens, especially with a change in your health, but also you see this with heartbreak or divorce, is you lose your future. Yes, like, that's right. We are a conscious species of great apes that is able to peek into the future and design. We bargain with it in a way. Yes. And we yeah. can trade time now for things later and we can decide to move rocks today so we can enjoy a pit tomorrow. And <laughs> it, it's one of the most devastating feelings. One of the only things that has brought me close to suicide is completely losing my future, Whether, especially with partners that I imagine being with forever. Mm. Yeah. One of the philosophies that comes through in your writing is that there's there's no cure to being human. A, that's that's the biggest market in the world is the cure to our humanity. Yeah. You know, it's the number one thing people are selling. It's the reason why you bought that reading chair that's too expensive is because if you bought the reading chair, you <laughs> would read, read. Yes. <laughs> I sure would. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. If you, if you buy this new piece of gym equipment, you'll be this person. It's the great palace lies that if you only blank, you could love yourself. If you only worked out more, you could love yourself. If you only own the right equipment, you could do these things. A line I heard in a show the other day that blew my mind is um, we were rewatching Westworld and Anthony Hopkins goes, people don't come here to find themselves. They know who they are. They come here to get a glimpse of who they could be. And I just thought, ah, that's so perfect. We know who we are deep down. We're not Uber life hacker, marathon runners, superhumans we're not yeah. that it that what we want is a glimpse that we could be more than we are you know we're the people who like sh probably should be writing more but instead we're, we're watching an extra show you know that that's who <laughs> i am at yeah. least i'll speak for myself yeah the coming to terms with our humanity and our limits and our comfort and our body's physical limits is, is one of the real journeys you can take here in this time is to figure out like, yeah, who am I? What do I actually like doing? I've chased it all, Kate. I've done steroids. I've bulked up. I've gotten really big, felt super hot. 
I don't keep it up. What really works for me is like somewhere in between steroids and working out every day at five and not working out at all. There's like a in between yeah. where Sam sits very well. I could say, what is this journey of, of accepting that things are completely out of your control? Yeah. What does it look like? Yeah. Chronic uncertainty. The one where I make plans and then they come apart. You know, it's a feeling as a culture we've been getting used to as pandemic people now. But my first go round at this was that I used to be a person who just imagined unlimited futures all the time. I, I was so specific about it. I had this really clear image of what I thought my life was going to be like, and I had been racing toward it for my whole life. I had these two professor parents, and so I knew exactly what academia was like. And I didn't expect it to be more than like a solid lower middle class, but was I going to be excited about some gargoyles? Yes, I was. Did I imagine a, a turret that at some point I'd build a house that had a turret? I sure did. I thought I'd have all these really grateful, very excitable graduate students. And that I, I think I, I thought that I have seven books and, and this feeling of, of just devouring ideas forever. And then when I was diagnosed, uh, it all happened very suddenly. And it was as if like the future was a language that I didn't speak anymore. And I didn't even notice how much we all spoke it like our mother tongue every day, you know, oh, in the summer, Al, hey, maybe you could. And it was my favorite place to be. And I realized then that it wasn't even that it was like a, that crystallized forever future, but that I was always living in the middle distance of possibility. Like I'd be in a beautiful wood and I'd think, oh, I can, like, when will we come? <laughs> I had talked about this with your mom. It's like, when, when will we come back? Like, I'm, I'm just like making plans. I'm not even, I'm not even where I am, but I'm like in the, I'm in the, I'm in the version of myself that comes back here a lot. It's, well, can I just be the person that can, came here this time? Is that not going to work for you? I, uh, I was always somewhere else that never, that hovered without landing. And then I was given two to three month scan intervals, which meant that I would enter a clinical trial where I would get a drug that would only be guaranteed to me for two months. And then I would get a scan again. And then if the tumors stayed still or shrank, then I was allowed to get another two months. So I really had to practice, regardless of how, I, how much I wanted to learn that incredible lesson, but I had to practice living 60 days at a time for years. And that did some good things mentally, and it did some really kind of awful things mentally. Because chronic uncertainty is a strange and slippery creature. I mean, like taxes, like it's a, it's a perfect example. It's like there's some future planning you have to do in order to s stop living in hypervigilance. Like you have to imagine that you're the kind of person who's going to be alive to file said taxes so that you can keep your receipts today. We're always making some kind of adjudication about the future. So I realized that hyperpresentism was bullshit. <laughs> and, that the, and that I was never going to be able to entirely live in the present, nor was that preferable. But that I would have to abandon the endless, exhausting futurism that I had spent 35 years like carefully cultivating. So I guess that's a lot of 
what I've been thinking about over the last couple of years and writing about is what is a different relationship to the past and the present and the future than the one I was so invested in. Part of it now, I guess, is that to me, the past is a place that I can go to for unforced gratitude because I, because no one can make me make a gratitude list. What? It's a place with, oh my gosh, I'm so over gratitude lists. People always say be grateful when your life is so horrible that they really want you because they, they, they want you just like add up smaller and smaller increments. And I just, it's a, it's often another thing people use to say that it's not so bad when it is in fact unbearable. Right. So I started, I started thinking of gratitude or the past as a way of remembering beautiful things, especially beautiful surprises, something I couldn't possibly have concocted on my own. And then I say, uh, thank God that's already mine. It's already mine. That gives me a way to be, just a way to feel like I received a present. Yeah. How, how would you describe that, that balance you're talking about between, I, I agree that the people who are like, just live in the present and we're going to personality lobotomize ourselves so we seem spiritual, <laughs> but we're like the least interesting people in the world. Um, <laughs> but like, that's not it. There is, there is a balance b between them. And in the, the chapter of your life you're in now, how, how would you describe that, that dance of finding that, that zone yeah. that feels yeah. right? Because I'm somebody who loves working. I love it. I love the feeling. I worked all the way through cancer. I wrote books in waiting rooms. I love it. Part of that has been because I got the gift of being able to do exactly what I'd hoped that I could do. And that was almost taken away from me. So I feel so grateful that my brain can swim away and be somewhere, especially when my body is in pain. That has been. So I, I've, even just the elasticity of the present feels like a little more dynamic to me than it did before. That you can be somewhere, like for instance, getting blood work and having to sit in the cancer center, but that you can also just be somewhere else. As you can go somewhere with your mind, you don't have to stay exactly where you are. It's okay, you're not always missing something. You know, that we borrow from the past and the future all the time for good reasons, protective, loving reasons. And that it's fun to make plans. So I just, I've come to just, I love, I love the future, but there will be no bucket list, no collective set of experiences that are ever going to feel like enough. It will always make me hungry. But I've, I've just, I've made my peace with that, of not having that kind of peace. To me, being hungry for, the, for more, for the future, feels exactly to me like being alive. And so I, uh, I can always tell it's like a good sign when I'm like nice, nice and hungry. It's beautiful. One of the things that stuck out to me a lot, especially as a father, I have a 12 year old and starting to really think about like, how do I help guide him into manhood? I didn't have a dad. So this is all new yeah. to me. I, you wrote about your hopes for your own child that you wanted to raise tough softies and I wrote down <laughs> knows the pain of the world and be better for it and there's something right there that i i wanted to kind of drill into and, and hear hear more about there's one line in a in a, in a book and it, it, but it spoke 
pages. There's something to that to where, yes, if you're, if you're just writing gratitude lists, they can become so shallow and such just another exercise, a useless exercise. I wish I had a word to describe what it means to be appreciative with your eyes wide open to the, mm. the horrors of the world. Yeah, yeah it, that's right. It, it seems like you've <laughs> thought about this a bit. So yeah, well, it was mostly because I had to not, because I had to undo a version. Because in my other version of parenthood, parenthood was preventing him from ever understanding pain, preventing him from seeing and feeling the weight of like the evil and the undoing of the world around us. And But in that model, if I'm the one that gets sick, if I'm the one that brings pain into our home, then that makes me actually the bad thing. It makes me the thing that happened to him. And that that also wasn't really true, like true in a deep sense of what love does, where love is the wide spectrum of the ability to see the world as it is, to help each other find our place in it. But that if I could find a gentler way of helping us both be honest about the not enoughness of life, then that would require a very different parenting model. So I'm, yeah, I, I now no longer think it's my job to be just just a shelter, just a antidote to pain, but that I want to be um, I want to be like a loving witness to the world as it is, and I hope then that we can it, that our, our love for each other will give a, us both courage, courage especially to serve. Because right now I'm in a season where I'm, I'm feeling pretty great. That means, that means then that it's a time to, to give back. It's like that hydraulic, we give and then we get and then we give and then we get. But we like the job is to keep pouring ourselves out, knowing that other people are there. They're going to be there to fill us up. And I guess that's, that's sort of how I feel about the way I love him. Because I just want to be there to fill him up and, and we pour it out and then we're right back to it. How do you explain it? I too want the, I want the home to be a shelter and, and a place of love, but I do also want it to be a training grounds for life. And I, I feel like I was kind yeah. of dropped on my head a bit, you know, the first time I was betrayed or the first time a friend stole from me or broke my trust or the first time they all yeah. caught me off guard. You know, I, I feel like I, I should have been told first thing, like bad things are going to happen. Yeah. Loved ones are going to die. And some of them you, you will never even know until like, overdose and car accidents and like you won't know until it happens and how do you have that yeah. conversation with with your child how do you explain that yeah because those to me are like the two themes i think a lot about is hope and courage hope for me but the, the kind i want to teach is not optimism it's the sense that god has placed god is in the future drawing us drawing us toward a big story about love so it's not hope in ourselves it's not self-reliance it's not the kind of hope i want for him is that he feels like he is part of a really deep history of love that he is that he can't possibly get out of but then also courage right that we have to like face the world as it is that we have to look suffering directly and say that this world is not enough and that we are certainly never never enough without one another so I feel like the courage piece was something that I lost somewhere in a like millennial parenting plan, <laughs> the need for it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, hope and courage, but it just, it can't be optimism and it can't be self-reliance and it can't just be endless self-esteem. Yeah. 
while I have you here, what, what's the difference between faith and hope to you? It's so funny. We just talked about that in my History of the Prosperity Gospel class the other day. I think the definition of uh, faith was a cultivated expectation and things not seen. I think that was the Pauline definition. I guess I always imagined hope, though, fundamentally as, well, I mean, the most Christian, most like Christological answer is Christ's salvation of the world. I think I always just kind of imagine it as like a, that hope is like an anchor, just, and there's just like a, there's like a long story that it's like we're being pulled like a rope toward. Yeah. But I don't, all I, I'm like better in the negative. Faith, as it turns out, is not in the place where we started. It is not positive words and thoughts affirmed out loud. It is, I think, a cultivated expectation in a truth that is not of our own manufacturing. But man, I'm not a biblical scholar. Wouldn't it be nice if I was, Sam? Well, you're at the School of Divinity. I expect, you know. No, I roam the hallways asking questions like, am I allowed to feel (laughs) this way? What's going on with me? You're an expert on prosperity gospel. And because you're somebody with a lot of theological training, I've been very interested in the teachings of Christianity lately. And I'm agnostic. I was raised Christian. And then when I got sober, I became a hardcore awful atheist. (laughs) What happened is I started to notice that the people who had higher power and the people that were part of group, like religious groups, were just doing better than me. There's just no arguing with it. And so I reluctantly have been dipping my toe back in and just trying to figure out what feels right. So when I read parts of the Bible or I listen, I'm doing moral readings more than anything else. Yeah. almost like reading them like myths, like what was it that these people that put these books together are trying to say is important because they've thought about it. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten a lot from it. Yeah. So I pray, I pray very reluctantly. And <laughs> I don't know who I'm praying to. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like most people have an idea of what prosperity gospel is. But since we, we have you here, <laughs> what is it specifically? Sure. Well, it's fun to start with a definition because it's so often misunderstood. The term prosperity gospel is usually used kind of as a slight, as a diss to people who believe that God wants to reward them with health and wealth and an overarching sense of victory in their lives. Just even knowing what to name it has been part of this kind of mystery that I, I felt like I was kind of like a detective in a, in a strange historical fiction narrative when I was trying to figure out how to be a historian of a thing that had not yet been named and, and the history not accounted for. Because it's uh, the belief that God wants to give you health and wealth and victory is a belief that started in the late 19th century as a result of nascent theologies about the power of the mind. That the most important thing spiritually about us is our power to create using positive thought and word. So what began as a set of beliefs about mind power fed its way into early Pentecostalism and gained with it a sense of the supernatural and that in all things in a Christian life that God could make you whole if you had the right kind of words and belief. So over the last hundred years, the prosperity gospel has been a loosely related set of enormous churches and televangelistic TV networks and now social media personalities who are there to give you the tips and tools and techniques to let you prosper where other people might fail. 
does it, in your estimation, does it come out of the revival movement? Uniquely American thing? Yeah. Well, oh, it is the most American, Sam. It could not be more American. It really is comprised of four major strands. One is the American dream, this aggressive, individualistic, bootstrapping belief so important to the since the founding of this nation that any American with the right attitude and hard work can prosper in this country. So the American dream, it's belief about mind power. That's a strand we call new thought, later just kind of Oprah, but it's this deep metaphysical tradition about the power of the mind. Then it really grew up inside of Pentecostalism, early 20th century, mostly healing revivals. And then the last piece is this very psychological, therapeutic gospel that we're all a part of, which is that we answer questions. Instead of I argue, we say, I feel that, which is that we have an overwhelming, fairly therapeutic culture that believes that all religion should inherently be good for you. All beliefs should be good for you and be able to be rendered instrumentally, like as tools in our life. So those are the kind of four strands that kind of weave together to be this like thick rope of the prosperity gospel. But I think it wouldn't be any of it wouldn't be anything if it didn't have all four, I think. So is it a response to the existentialism or the self-reliance that the secular world was going through? Is it a way for the church to be relevant and to kind of meet people with what they're interested in? Or where do you trace it back I usually think of it as a spirituality of the city, that it grew up inside the rising inequality among the very rich and the very poor the very first millionaires and billionaires in this country, that it became kind of a de facto theology of luck, what makes some people rise and other people fall. And that really could only happen inside of an urban environment in which people were surrounded by, by some people who seemed like they had it all and, and, and then so many who had nothing. So the prosperity gospel around the world tends to thrive where there is a tremendous amount of inequality. And that's certainly how it started in the rise of the first big cities of America. This was your work way before your life got turned on its head. This was what you were, you dove into for yeah. 10, 10 I was years but a, but a child nerd, Sam. I was just a young nerd roaming the prairies of Canada, <laughs> searching for a, an intellectual topic. I'm so obnoxious about being Canadian that I, that's sort of how it started was I saw this enormous megachurch, which I, I didn't understand what a megachurch was. I thought it was a factory. The people were pouring out of on a Sunday morning in my hometown of Winnipeg, Manitoba. I couldn't understand why Canada, Winnipeg, no less, just this wonderfully dumpy city of the prairies that I'm so proud to call my home, was home to Canada's largest prosperity megachurch. So it began with a sense of car accident wonder and condescension and skeptical curiosity. And then it became, it was my entire 20s. I ruined every family vacation. I wanted to understand what puts people in the pews of like a big story about winners and losers. And at the time, I didn't really, I guess, think of myself as either a winner or a loser, but just kind of an observer until, of course, I was like a loser in the game of luck. And uh, after that, I, I couldn't see it the same way again. So just to cue the listener in, so everything happens for a reason, really starts with your cancer diagnosis and, and prognosis. Yeah. I was 35. I just had a little baby. I'd like finally gotten my dream job. I was kind of finally like a full adult in my own eyes that had a, a plan and 
like a trajectory and that feeling of like wind at my back for a second. And then, uh, yeah, and I was the world's expert <laughs> in the history of the idea that you can always fix your life. There's always like the person whose life explodes. It's sort of everybody's first go around of like, oh, didn't you hear about blank? And then yeah, my life sudden... explodes often. I have really <laughs> severe mental illness. So 2019 to midway through 20, well, let's see, all 2019, 2020, I thought I was dying. I, I had some psychosomatic. So I was in the hospitals getting the blood work. And it was like, yeah. I'm somebody who frequently self implodes. And so now I have somebody working with me who helps keep the wheels on the bus. Yeah. But I can relate. One of the things I guess what, what I'm getting at is, is I loved the glimpses I got in the two books that I read of your upbringing and, and your foundation that came into this. I guess what I'm trying to capture is you spent so many years studying divinity and kept your faith, which is not always the case. I know a lot of people who went to seminary lost their faith. <laughs> what was your relationship to Christianity? What was your, your upbringing that came in and said, hey, this is worth preserving. This is what I love dearly. And this other thing is missing the mark. Mm -hmm. I guess in, in some respects, I had like a very, very religious upbringing because I was surrounded by so many kinds of Christians and predominantly um, adorable cheese-eating Mennonites of the prairies. Just a Mennonites of... are electric Amish, right? <laughs> they are. Uh, they would hate that, Sam. They would not disagree. They're like a Amish and uh, Hutterites and Mennonites and all kinds are considered sort of like the children of the Radical Reformation. They're like usually what they all have in common, they're kind of like theological cousins, is that they're typically communal in thinking. They prize usually pacifism, simplicity. They have an over and againstness with the state. They're not typically like the first to run for political office or because for the most part, deeply suspicious of the claims that the state makes on the individual. And I kind of have always liked all of those things. Canada doesn't have what we consider like a civil religion, like the sense that God has set apart our fine country for special divine purposes like Americans do. And so I grew up in one sense with Christians everywhere. And then at the same time, knowing that I belonged to a very secular culture in which my faith was a choice that I was making, but was not something that I was going to be congratulated much for. And uh, so when I moved to the States for the first time, I was like, holy cow, people have a lot going on with a cultural expectation of like a de facto Christianity. So I, I think I never really felt like my faith had to be rescued from like either a project about patriotism. I didn't need to be reminded that no one really cared what I believed. I always felt like that was in there from day one. So what, what do you think that the Mennonites got right? What do you think carries? Because one of the things that comes up in the book for me is I share a lot of the same thoughts, especially when it comes to like modernity and how absolutely separated we all are and how individual we all are. In my journey of trying to understand like what is working here? Why in the intentional communities? I have a friend who went and visited all the communes, all the intentional communities kind of creating their own societies. He said the only ones that stick together long-term and don't devolve are the ones that have some kind of faith. 
Hmm. And he's not a big person of faith. He was just an observation. Another thing that I learned is the, I guess what Martin Luther King called the, the holy community and the, the purpose of, of lamentations. And the, the idea of that when life is coming, when things happen, which life will come and, and children will die untimely deaths and your friends who don't seem to deserve it will have horrible things happen to them. Hmm. And the idea that there's more than the individual. And I think that is something that you're describing in the communities you grew up with. And if you could tell us about that. Yeah, I, I, I love all those things that you just mentioned, Sam. I love a sense of corporate responsibility that people can have for one another. Growing up in a Mennonite church full of delightful oddballs, but who are deeply, deeply faithful, there was this sense that they felt like they had assigned themselves to help raise me and launch me as a person. They have let me play every terrible cello anthem when they pass the bucket around. They let me become with a very high tolerance for each other's humanity because they expect that they're in it for the long haul. Mennonites are wonderful at having a communal sense of success and also just at suffering together, in part because they have such a long history of imagining themselves as a suffering people, the ones that are probably going to be kicked out by the state and have to start again. That's really true of a lot of the like theological kids of the Radical Reformation. But they were wonderfully practical in their love. Just the first people to sign up to give me $60 to help pay for college books or to bring me food when I was sick, but like very practical, concrete, low glamour. They're like the ultimate lo-fi faith, which I just, after having spent so long in mega churches and places with enormous like fog machines and pyrotechnics, spiritual pyrotechnics, I've come to really appreciate that sort of faith more and more, especially as I suffer. How do you think us more secular folk can in incorporate some of that wisdom? How do we build communities that actually do that? Yeah, that I, th I think one of the things that they, I just noticed this a lot about Mennonites, that they have really low expectations uh, for, like they have a low, th maybe low expectations, not the way to, no, I, it's low expectations. They're just not expecting perfection from one another, so they're not going to be that disappointed. They keep it on the even keel. Some of that is masking their own feelings, which they are really... <laughs> experts in, in a way that we might not always think is healthy, but they really do expect to be neighbors over the long haul. And so I think in a way, not expecting perfection from each other, not imagining that everybody's going to love each other's, just cherish each other's personalities, that interdependence sometimes means lowering the bar, which means I, th I think part of the loveliest bit about that to me is that if everybody does a little bit, it really does make life bearable. So you don't have to be sort of the heroic friend. Everybody could just pitch in a little bit. It's sort of potluck style kind of love. And none of it's very glamorous. It's like, here's the garbage thing I, I had in my uh, I had in my fridge and I made it for you. Hope you like it or don't, but I did make it for you. So here's a challenge for you. In your 10 years of going to these mega churches and studying this other prosperity gospel, as, as you call it, what did they get right? Oh, I love the prosperity gospel. I guess that's was a real surprise to me. It took me a few years to realize the courage in their faith, the delight they took in expecting things from God and from faith. If Mennonites have low expectations, prosperity gospel has sky high expectations. And it's easy to make fun of the person who believes, you know, God is in every empty parking space kind of thing. But I a few years into just having a lot of prosperity 
friends and people that I'd interviewed, I came to really value the the delight and wonder that they took in feeling that God loved every part of their life and God and God thought every part of it was meaningful. So does God care that they get that promotion or that that kid comes home or that they felt beautiful today? I mean, there was such a, I, looking at the long history of the prosperity gospel, so often it's been adopted by groups that have been marginalized. It gives them such a strong sense of being cherished. It's, it's partly sometimes what material prosperity does for us. Like I'm just thinking of some of the 1920s and 1930s inner city prosperity gospels. You'd have these prophets with giant mink coats and elongated nails to prove that there was no, they would never do manual labor. And in all of that, it could be seen as absurdist in one way, but in the other, it was about displaying the dignity of, of a black body and the kind of celebration of all the pleasures that a body can have. So I, yeah, I found in the prosperity gospel, like a sense of playfulness and delight and also dignity that it can give you when you feel like you are chosen and loved and worthy of all good things. I have a strange anecdotal personal relationship to the modern evangelicalism and these megachurch societies because I know a lot of refugees. Like a lot of these refugees mm -hmm. who left these communities have just come into my life and become friends of mine. There's always this funny dynamic where they're they're telling me about all the stuff that was wrong with it and that it was terrible. It was not affirming of LGBT. And that's that's important to me because I'm not what most straight people would call straight. But at the same time, they made it past, they made it <laughs> into their 20s before they ever did drugs. Or, yeah. or before they, and there's this, what I can only describe as kind of like that, that Christian love. You know, you can see it in their eyes. It's a little twinklier where, <laughs> where they're not quite sizing you up right away. They're just taking you in as you, as you are in front of them. There's this strange polarity between their experience, which a lot of them had bad experiences, and then the person that they are. And if you were to throw them in a mall, they'd stand out as people with more integrity, more better character in my estimate. Something about it has produced that, but I'm not sure if it is the the teachings in the church or if it was the, the odyssey of escaping the church, but there is something there. And there, one thing I deeply appreciate is how much work goes into the young people. I mean, the, the productions of these concerts that were completely dry, no drugs, no alcohol, but the music was fantastic and the gatherings frequently where me on the West Coast, California, hippie town, there was nothing for us, Kate. There was uh -huh. nothing at all for us. If you wanted to have fun as a kid, you skateboarded or you mountain biked, but there was no adults doing, putting on any production for us. We all ended up drug addicts, nerds and jocks and drug addicts, just classic drug addicts like me. We all self-initiated ourselves because there was no real community. There was adults floating around, but it was certainly not what I see my friends who have come from those upbringings. It was nothing like that. There was no wow. multiple adults gathering together to make something for the kids, to make the town be something for the next generation. Yeah. And so it's strange to compare the two. Yeah. That's it's one of the weird advantages of subcultures, right? Is societies made inside other societies where they imagine difference. And like in Canada, Christianity is a, a subculture because it doesn't assume mainstream acceptance. Here in the United States, evangelicalism has been so big that it was able to create its own separate world. One of the advantages of subcultures is 
sounds like exactly what you're describing, Sam, is that there are inside worlds of worlds. They take all the responsibility for making the community that they want them to live inside, that they build high walls. But in, inside of it, there's like a very high degree of like curation and careful attention. And certainly the spiritual formation of kids and what they do and giving them 200 games so they try not to have sex with each other has been a huge part of the conservative Christian subculture. And it does create really strong, has it, it, gets, it creates its own music, it creates its own slang, it creates its own celebrities. But certainly it gives people a very intense sense of belonging that can really communicate a lot of love. Yeah, that's the, the main thing that I've kind of focused in on is like when I'm looking around and kind of learning about how I want to be in the world and it's like, oh man, the building of communities intentionally, it's certainly in the recovery community that I'm a part of, one of yeah. the, the major forces is that you are instantly handed a community and you're handed a purpose, which is well, you suffered, you got this for free, this community, now it's your job to go give it away. But the, hmm. the funny difference about recovery is that you're not allowed to, it's attraction rather than promotion. So you can't go that. Yeah, the whole yeah. thing is like, you're supposed to carry yourself in a way where people go, man, what's, what's going on with you? Yeah. You're different. If you don't mind me asking, I'd love to hear more about like the qualities that you love inside that community. It's so beautiful and distinct. It really is. And I've been thinking about how to bring that to people who don't necessarily enjoy meth or alcohol like I do. <laughs> but one of the great breakthroughs is that the reason why it's, it's really lasted 80 years strong is that there was an Oxford group that started before the 12 step and that was Christian based. And what made 12 step different is that you had to have a higher power, like most organizations like the Masons and stuff require that too but it could be one of your choosing. And it did not have to be a personal God. It did not have to be an omnipotent God. It could be the moon if you wanted it to, or it could be the group of drunks itself. So I think that the idea of, there's kind of a, a forced calling to something bigger than yourself. And I think that in the, the world that we live in now, it's really isolated. A lot of people don't know their neighbors the people who you would call an emergency are probably not, they're yeah. like your friends across town or something. They're not the people next to you. To meet regularly, I think is incredible. One of the, yeah. uh, the things I miss about being a practicing Christian, which maybe I will be one day, I don't know. But one of the things I miss is the regular gathering. And I think magic happens when you gather people, yeah. not just, I mean, just almost by itself. Because for instance, if you're a carpenter, and you're doing lousy work to people in the community, you have to show up on Sunday and look everybody in the eyes. And <laughs> everybody, including you, have to confront the fact that you charge too much or that you did shoddy work. And so there's this constant having to reintegrate back into the group after what you have done. If you've carried yourself well, if you've been a man or woman or person of integrity, that's something that the recovery community does regularly is that we meet regularly. Even if you aren't obsessing about drinking or using, mm -hmm. we still meet regularly. It says in the literature we read that we meet regularly so that newcomers know where to find us. Yeah. But at, at the same point, it's, it's a program of deep personal responsibility. It, it's very different than I would say talk therapy like is today, where it's very much about hearing what went wrong to you and being very compassionate of that. 
the the follow up that your mentor given that you pick will say to almost everything you tell them is, "Okay, what's your part in it?" And you go, "I am truly a victim here." And they'll go, "Yeah, that sounds really hard. What's what's your part in it? Is there?" And it's kind of always, and it can get turned on its head too. There's a shadow side to that. And another thing that I guess it shares with Christianity is that it's built on the idea that humans are totally imperfect beings. Hmm. You know, we're a room full of junkies and drunks who, for me, I was pretty much high and drunk from 12 to 22. I showed up as an adult. My mother wasn't talking to me. My friends weren't talking to me. I had no money for rehab. This group of people was there and they taught me how to be an adult. And eventually I get my mother back in my life. I get my friends, most of my friends back in my life. So I think it really has to do with the gathering. I've been reflecting lately on this kind of truth, which is that people don't really change. And like, if you're expecting your, if you're expecting your, your, your spouse or your partner or your kid to like radically change, you're, you're missing out because <laughs> the thing that needs to change is probably your perspective. Hmm. But in my own life, I have this radical example of a, a psychic and personal and spiritual complete shift, 180. If I compare that to my new year's resolutions, I don't have that. Hmm. I don't do my new year's resolutions. If I am resolved to work out every single day, I might get three months of a good manic drive or six months of a good manic drive, but I kind of settle back in. And I think it was the group. I think it's when you, when you do things in group, there's more of a transformative element to it. There's something that allows it to happen. A, your shitty ideas and your lofty goals get edited pretty quickly. I mean, how dare you, Sam? I've got really great ideas. and I have great ideas too. But (laughs) when I'm part of a group, people might remind me that's not sustainable. You know, that's a really bad plan. Maybe instead of running a mile every day, maybe the goal should just be to exercise every day because Mm -hmm. you might not be able to run a mile. Mm-hmm. But that's what I've yeah. gotten out of groups. And it's really, I mean, when I think about what, what on earth do I want to do here during my time, I'm very time aware, as I'm sure you are too. I write down in my journal every single day what day of my life it is. Today is day 11,838 nice. of uh, hopefully projected 30,000. That would take me to 82. I eat healthy. I feel like maybe. And <laughs> I, I'm, I'm aware that that's kind of based on the average lifespan of a human being. So I have no idea what what's going to happen to me. I'm aware, first and foremost, that I am an earthling. You're an earthling, but we really belong to a time. We're temporal beings. I belong to 1989 to maybe 2071. And that's my chunk. The earth is going to be here long after me. It was here long before me. We belong to our times. What I want to do with, with my time is figure out a way to share what I've gotten a piece of, which is that this hyper-individualism isn't working. (laughs) It really isn't working. It definitely isn't working for me. And I know it's not working for a lot of people that we aren't ending at our fingertips. You know, this idea that to me, it feels like people take too much credit for them. You didn't design your consciousness. You you had very little to do with it. If I had to do with your upbringing, I'm sure, and your culture that you grew up in, but you kind of just became that. And yeah. I'm sorry if I'm rambling. I don't mind at all. That, 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 you, you don't end at your fingertips reminds me of an interview I did one time for the Everything Happens podcast with Abigail Marsh. She is a fear researcher and she studies altruism and like why she did like a wonderful interview set with people who, for instance, will like donate a kidney to, to a stranger, that kind of thing. Like what 
prompts people to do these incredibly unselfish things. But one thing she talked a lot about in her book is the the feeling that we are, the literal feeling that we are more than just our bodies. Like if you give us tools, I guess for some reason right now I'm picturing Edward Scissorhands, but like if you give us extensions of ourselves that we immediately expand in our mind to accommodate those things. And that gives us such wonderful imagination for the interdependence you're describing that we are, if we don't only belong to ourselves, that our, our minds can actually expand to imagine other people belonging to that other, I guess that's then had then how she came up with her sort of very thick account of why generosity happens at that level is because people don't fundamentally imagine themselves as different and separate from each other and are therefore right. even prone to be like, okay, so then my kidney is your kidney. Yeah, well, to, to succeed right now, you have to be like a master of so many things. You have to be an accountant. You have to learn how to do your finances. You have to know <laughs> yeah. how to uh, have some kind of trade. You have to know how to pay your taxes at the end of the year, how to feed yourself properly, how to exercise properly. And it just doesn't ever feel manageable to me until I enter into some kind of group. Yeah, I'm like, with you. I... I gave up on being an individual roughly the time I got sick because I, I realized that I couldn't actually manage. I couldn't manage myself, especially if I was going to die. And then who was going to be there for my family? And so individualism was just like a non-starter for me. And I, I had always felt very guilty about that in part because I had accepted the idea that we were supposed to be self-making and only weak people need friends as much as I do. Or I developed in my own little mind the idea that I was like one of those medieval buildings where they're trying to figure out how to add an extra story on top. And they're like, gosh, we really don't know how to build that high. We're not architecturally there. And so then they just started adding these support structures, right? They started adding buttresses, then buttresses on buttresses. And I was like, oh, that seems actually a lot more like my life than other things. I'm going to need like a lot of flying buttresses. So that's what I call my best friends in my life. It's not the most flattering term, but I was like, hey, flying buttresses, thanks. We're going to build this. If we're going to build this life, I'm going to need a lot of external scaffolding. For me, it's the biggest change that I've made in my life this year is that I was really struggling. My therapist basically said, I don't think that somebody that a single child with a single mom and somebody who was very sensitive, I don't think that you should be working with yourself. Like, I think you need to either get into a company or you need to take on a business partner. I go, I can't afford a business partner. He goes, well, can't afford to keep doing this. Taking uh, Reese on it and doing this together has changed the entire process for me. He was also my best friend before. We basically got uh, opportunity in between jobs. And I basically said, do you want to be poor with me for five years and try and do this? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, yeah. He's like, yes. You're gesturing. Does that mean that Reese is right there? Oh, yeah. He's he's producing the show. He pushes all the buttons. Reese, hello, best friend. My taxes are incredibly hard for me, and it brings up a lot of emotion and a lot of financial insecurity, and they're not for Reese. He told me today that his garage is a mess. I'm like, what? His garage, <laughs> garage is never a mess. And he goes, I'm buried. Can you come help me? That's yes. amazing. His garage is not going to be difficult for me. You know? Yeah. So I really think one of the most important things we can do while we're here is to be part of groups and to make groups yeah, and to build community. That's why I started a project. I got tired of doing this by myself. Yeah, it was. It really was the second I got sick. I was like, well, if I'm going to do anything, 
I'd really rather all do it together. So the very best part of my day is that I have a place to go where there are other people that I enjoy being around. And then we make things. I have this little project here now at Duke University and we just make, we make podcasts and we make blessings and we respond to like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pieces of mail every week. So we hear the like, we get to feel the pulse of people's pain and joy and hope. We get to all shoulder that work together because I find it completely overwhelming if I was just to like take all that on by myself. But now it just feels bearable. And not just bearable, but actually fun. We make jokes and then we make those jokes into signs and then we put them up on the hallway. <laughs> like live, laugh, ugh is a sign now that brings me so much joy. And one time I was like, yeah, okay, it's life now instead of best life now. And then they made that into a sign. And that's to me is like such a perfect externalization of the joy of, 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 of like this kind of relief that we're describing is not doing it alone. You've been incredibly generous with your time. So I don't, I won't take up too much of it, but if I were to hand you the phone right now and on the other end was, was you when you first got diagnosed, what, what's the message that you would want to send to that person? Well, it wouldn't be, it's all going to be okay. <laughs> because that's, because that's not really what I'd need to hear. I think it's such a hard question because there were times when I needed to save my own life. Advocacy. I mean, there's some moments in the last couple of years where I have saved my own life by using my healthy outdoor voice. But most of the time it was that I needed other people to save me. So I think I would just say, don't do it alone. Thank you for your time, Kate. Sam, lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet um, you. I don't entirely understand the geography of California, but when I do, I will come say hi. Yeah, please do. We have a guest room for you. Here. That's awesome. Thanks for listening to the How To Human podcast. This is probably going to be part of the next chapter of my journey is discovering what do I love about what these people are doing because it has been very easy for me to pinpoint what I hate about what these people are doing. I've noticed that there's something there truly and deeply that I am drawn to. There is something there for me. If you know other incredible theologians, imams, spiritual teachers, I would love for you to email me because this is probably a big chunk of what the next chapter is about. As always, we'd appreciate it if you wrote us a review on the iTunes store. And please, if you'd love to join us, you like this type of conversation and would like to be a part of a conversation like this, follow us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash howtohuman, sign up for the book club, and I'd love to meet you. It's a pleasure to get to know more of the listeners and people that enjoy these conversations I enjoy having. So until next time, have a great day.